0: Whoa, feedback.
1: Okay, this is the voiceover for the opener of the voiceover radio show. This is take one.
0: In a world where laughter
1: was king. Uh, no, in a world, buddy. What do you mean, no, in a world? Um, it's a podcast.
2: Oh,
0: okay. In a land that.
1: No, in a land either. In a time. No, I don't think so.
0: In the land before
1: time. It's two guys talking about voiceovers.
0: When everything you know is wrong. That's wrong. A girl. No. Two girls.
1: Well, maybe Andrew, but come on. Now, no.
0: More than Stop it. a renegade cop. A cop? A robot renegade cop.
1: You're fired. You're fired. No, you're actually fired.
0: I'm fired.
1: Get out of the booth, Jack.
3: no.
0: I like it in here.
3: There's no take two. There's no... Just a little more purple. Warts and all. You've downloaded the VO Radio Show.
2: In a world where two guys talk voiceover. Welcome to the <laughs> VO Radio Show. My name's Andrew Peters, and across the way is... Robbo. Robbo. How are you, mate? Good, mate. How are you doing? How's your week I'm, been?
1: Yeah, good. Busy. Yeah, as usual. Cracking them out. Got a... Um, A client, I do some imaging for up in Singapore,
2: so um, they've been keeping me busy
1: this week, so that's been nice.
2: Yeah, Singapore's good to both of us, I've got to say. Yeah, nice part of
1: the world. I love Singapore. I can live there. Yeah. Got a couple of mates that do. Must get up in the
2: Silver Bird and pop up there and get some nice warm weather. Take me away. Now, this week we're uh, talking to uh, an expat Aussie called Nick Tate, an Mm. interesting guy. It's going to be a great interview. Mm. just a bit of background on Nick. Nick's father and mother were actors, as we'll find out in the interview. But uh, mm-hmm. Nick's father, John Tate, uh, was also part of the uh, the, the uh, voices, or one of the voices, for the TV series The Thunderbirds.
1: Ah, like one old of my kids' favourites. Yeah, yeah, my kids still watch Thunderbirds.
2: I know, so do mine. They yeah. love it.
1: Yeah, they've yeah. got the DVD box set, and they sit down and watch it constantly.
2: Yep. Yeah. Same here. That thing just never keeps on giving. Yeah, And uh, and John was there as an an expat Aussie doing an American accent, of course, along with uh, Bud Tingwell, another Australian actor. Yeah. Ray Ray Barrett was also part of the cast. Wow.
1: I must read the credits more often. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. But it's
2: all these Aussies. And the reason that uh, Jerry and Sylvia Anderson used the Aussies Mm. was because uh, they actually could do a pretty convincing American accent. Yeah. Which is... um, Interesting. In fact, Nick Tate has made most of his money out of doing an American accent. As an American, that's right. Yeah. Doing Interesting. Also, that you don't
1: hear a lot of convincing Australian accents as an as an Australian. I can honestly say. I mean, even you know, Meryl Streep in um, in in the uh, the remake of the the um, Azaria Chamberlain movie, you know. Yeah. She, she she was close
2: but she wasn't quite on the money. It's a tricky one. The the, the best Australian accent I've ever heard was an accident. It was Dick Van Dyke in uh, Mary Poppins. Okay. Right. And <laughs> try to be a Londoner. It was just awful. <laughs> Just a well, there shot. you go maybe that says it all maybe they maybe we should shoot for English more than Australian. yes exactly <laughs> but it's funny because a lot of Australians are doing as we know doing very well in the Hollywood yeah, even the, uh, the lovely lady who does our uh, imaging for the VA radio ooh. show Larissa Gallagher she yeah. uh, is an Australian there you go people yeah Living
1: in LA and living yeah. the dream. There's a lot of us who's doing well over there at the moment, isn't that? You know, like we all know Nicole Kidman, Russell Crowe, you know all those sort of guys. But um, there's you know Rebel Wilson and and some of those other ladies, Isla Fisher, um, yeah. and a few of those people doing really well over there. Yeah, it's great to see.
2: I mean, Ellen DeGeneres is uh, often seen in sunny Geelong down in uh, my neck of the woods. Ah, well, her wife is um, from down your way, is she not? Correct, Portia. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she's yeah. a Geelong think, yeah. girl. Right,
1: you've rocked up and said hello, had of a course. cup of coffee with him, mate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just hang out with the stars as usual.
2: Hang out, <laughs> you know what I mean. As you do, as you of do. Of course, it's Why interesting not? though because the Aussie accent. Wh- what is it about the Aussie accent that makes it easier to become or to to uh, conv- be convincing as an American? Mm. I've never quite got my head around that, but it's um, if you listen to a Brit trying to do an American, and I'm not going to include uh, the star of Home, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times it just doesn't quite click. I mean, one of the first no. films I saw that I, I couldn't believe was uh, Russell Crowe and, and Guy Pearce in L.A. Confidential. Yep, two Aussies starring roles in an American movie, playing yeah. Americans yeah. and playing them very well. Yep, absolutely.
1: What well, uh, so, do you reckon? Uh, do you reckon the, the the rise of the Australian film industry in general is
2: is helping this? I think it it was a. It, it was certainly the, uh, the linchpin for many Australian actors realising mm. that if they were going to get work, uh, they needed to uh, be able to be convincing as American because mm. a lot of American movies have been shot in Australia. That's right. Um, you know, yeah. big big uh, Hollywood productions, you know, Star Wars. Yeah, and yeah well, we've got
1: um, Johnny Depp out here at the moment up on the Gold Coast doing uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, don't we? Yeah, we do, without his dogs. Without his dogs, yes. <laughs> we might put a link to that somewhere for um for those of us who don't know what we're talking about, but just recently Johnny Depp had to send his poor little pooches home because he didn't cl- declare them to customs on his way in. So, um, it, yeah,
2: yeah, and they have to go was, through quarantine because, right. uh, you know, rabies, it's a serious thing down here because um, we don't have it, but if you end that's up right. with uh, a, a dog with rabies down yeah. here and can yeah. decimate the... Um, uh, sort of agriculture.
1: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We, I think Australia is certainly starting to put its hand up as a, a major player in um, not only voiceover, but but celluloid and, and all the rest of it as well.
2: Yeah, well, Nick's story is fascinating because the way he ended up doing movie trailers, you will not believe. Right. And talk about, you know, a chance meeting. Mm, mm. Unbelievable. Yeah, I look forward to hearing that. Yeah, and it's such a—it's a really cool interview, and we're going to run it over two episodes, so it's going to be part one of the Nick Tate interview. Oh, you do love a chat, don't you? I do love a chat, and (laughs) certain—well, Nick loves a chat. Right, big tip. There you go. Yeah, lovely. There's no legs left on chairs in my house. I can tell you. (laughs) <laughs> oh, <Or> is.
3: <laughs> in a world where only the best voice will do. Realtimecasting.com
1: uh, Well, look, I've been doing a bit of uh, I've been doing a bit of thinking this week, uh, and I've come up with um, uh, five ways to boost your creative mojo. Uh-huh. What are so- they? If he wants to think about. All right. Well, the first one uh, I would talk about is rest. So. We all know that you know we're supposed to get eight hours sleep. I'm sure there's not many of us, especially in this industry, that do. Um, however, research has proved that uh, a good night's sleep is actually good for your creativity. So, um, if you if, even if you can't sleep for eight hours, just rest in general. Like if you if you sleep for six hours or seven hours, and and you get up in the morning and you take the dog for a walk for an hour. The the research is showing that just that rest of your brain and all that sort of stuff is making up for that extra hour's sleep that you actually didn't physically get.
2: So um, yeah, so that's
1: kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Reading is the next one, um, expanding your mind. So you know, reading but reading out of your comfort zone. So you know, reading something that so, uh, sort of pushes you um, mentally that you like may a, not like normally
2: f- read. Yeah, like for me, a book. Yeah, well, f- for me, from, As <laughs> you know, opposed to a cartoon.
1: Yeah, maybe from Playboy to Mix Magazine or something yeah, like that. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, look, it's actually
2: interesting. I, it, which is slightly ironic, mm. um, because I make a living out of reading, mm. I've never been a reader.
1: I was a yeah, poor right.
2: at school. I, I'm, You know, I yep. think I'm actually a bit dyslexic, to be honest, but um, <laughs> um, I was terrible at school. I, You know, I used yeah. to sort of fudge my way through it.
1: But it's interesting, though, like, from any type of book, where you can sort of get ideas from though, you know, like it's – and it's also um, – and part of the reason of, of, of sort of reading a book is it uses a different part of your brain and and when you relax the creative side of your brain, that's when the ideas tend to come. Um, I don't know about you but I, I'm a I'm a bit of a, an avid gardener. I've got a veggie patch out the back that the kids and I love to work in and I, I find quite often that I'll be – if I'm stuck for an idea for something for, some, for a promo or something that I've been sent for radio – um, if I take my mind off it and go and do something completely removed from it, all of a sudden the ideas start to come. So that's sort of the idea of reading is is you know reading out and reading outside of your comfort zone is that it sort of it, it encourages another part of your brain to work. Yeah,
2: I mean the thing is you've also got to remember that we get once you get to a certain age, you probably actually stop learning because you kind of go, well, I've learned everything I need. That's fine, mm. and that's the, the the end basically.
1: Absolutely. Now another one another big one um, and I know that a lot of our agency friends out there will do this regularly anyway. Um, but watch other people's work yeah or listen to other people's work. that's a big one. Um, and I'm not saying by that I'm not saying listen to it and copy it. but what I'm saying is listen to it and and sort of turn it into your own. Um, I have uh, I have a, a couple of files sitting on my work computer that I if I'm stuck for an idea, I'll drag in and just listen through and it's stuff that other people's work that I've listened to on the web and it might have something into it in it, in it that I like yep. that I think sounds good. And um, and and then I'll... I'll so, so I'll listen through that file and I'll think, oh, the, you know, if I took that idea and just did this to it and did this and did this, that would work in, in this situation. So other people's work is always a good um, a good way to inspire your brain to think a little bit differently. Yeah,
2: it's funny actually being uh, on this side of the glass, being the voice, mm. um, I don't actually hear... Well, most of the time, I don't actually hear the end result of the work I've done, mm, and mm. that I find is probably not a good thing. I, I, you know, I, I really yeah. want to hear it because it because it's funny. You know, if you hadn't if you've done something and then a month later you hear the finished product, you go, "Oh God, I wish I'd done that differently. That didn't work." Yes, so yeah. that, that's probably a good if you can get access to work you've done. It's always good to, to right. use it as a reference just to see if you're heading in the right direction. Because you also get lazy and you Definitely. get into habits, you know. Yes. I'm no
1: voiceover artist, but most voiceovers that I know have their regular read that they just fall into as soon as you open your mouth in the studio. Yeah. Well, you'd see and them that's all not the time. And that's not bad. Yeah, thing, yeah.
2: you'd see them all the time. Yes, of course.
1: So how do you how do you direct someone to get them out of a rut? Well, I guess, I guess when I'm going back to the casting stage, I know that... If I book Andrew Peters, I know that he's going to walk into the studio and he will give me this read to begin with. Yeah, um, and then I know I, by because I've worked with Andrew Peters a bit, I know that if I ask him to go here, he can. Um, you know, whereas I guess if I am looking at you know someone else, voiceover artist B, um, I might think, well, voiceover artist B probably won't be able to go there or, you know, have that sort of extension to their voice or whatever it is that I'm looking for. So I think that's probably it. Yeah. But I think you start from a base read and an understanding of what that voice artist can do.
2: I always find it interesting. In fact, this happened to me probably a couple of years back that I got a call from uh, one of the radio networks here uh, to use me for uh, a new network, a digital network they were putting together. Now, Mm. Based on you, you, you know me, and you know the kind of work I do. But mm. you've actually known me before that I did that work, as we worked together in radio yeah. back in the early nineties. But um, that's right. This person hadn't worked with me in radio, so he didn't know that I could actually do that particular read. So I was really curious yeah. as to why he called me, and I've never got the answer. But anyway, yeah. that that job still goes, and I'm I put on this you know Aussie right you know rock and roll voice, yeah. um, which suits the network. But no yeah. one would have ever. Picked me or cast me for that.
1: I think I think the, the point you make fairly clearly there, and the, and the point that I would make to voiceover artists who are listening to this and sort of interested in what we're talking about is, make sure that your demo covers your entire range. Yeah. You know, if if you can do something, don't presume that I'll know that you can because you know, this day and age, you might be in a, an American voiceover artist with someone listening to your work thinking about hiring you in Germany. Or you know France or England anywhere they they may not know you at all but and if they don't hear that range they don't know
2: you have it so they'll they'll move over. Yeah, I'm always amazed so, when I hear demos of people and you you go from one read to another and you would never ever pick that that was the same person.
1: Yes, that's right. That is such and they're a skill. the ones that are probably doing themselves a favour. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Totally. So anyway, yes, that's a that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, Watching other people's work was that all five? That's there's two more. Let's just do them quickly. Yep. Learning, invest in some uh, invest in some learning. Anything you can um, you can do to improve your skills. And the final one, which is very important for brain for your brain, is get fit. Yep, stay stay fit. Eat well as well as you can because obviously the body feeds the brain. So um so yeah, there's my there's my top five tips.
2: Well, my brain's certainly not hungry then.
1: No, <laughs> no, I feed my brain Tim Tams.
2: Yes, exactly. <laughs> Tim Tams for those uh, um, people. Oh, chocolate biscuits. Chocolate biscuits, yeah. yeah. Famous chocolate biscuits. Yeah. Aussie icons. Aussie, yeah, it yeah, is. Like Vegemite.
1: It's, yeah, it's sort of like the uh, American Oreo, isn't
2: yeah. it? Yeah. It's um, a bit of a legend. Well, kind of like yeah. Oreo, so if you yeah. can imagine chocolate over the top of the Oreo. Chocolate-coated yeah Yeah, yeah you're there you go. The, yeah. <laughs> I think there's a few people listening salivating now going, I want that. <laughs> Whatever it is, I <laughs> yeah, want that's them. that's right. Indeed. Uh, to talk about learning though. We will be talking to Joan Bogdan in future episodes and she is an mm. established voiceover talent but also uh, a coach. She's been around in New York for years. She's fantastic. So good tips coming from her.
1: Yeah, yeah. totally.
2: So, yeah. All right. Well, um, we better go talk to – well, you better go talk to Nick, I suppose. Indeed, indeed. On his uh, road microphone as he sits underneath the stairs. Let's check it out, Nick Tate. The
3: VO radio show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. Radio TV Sound Design. Find it all at voodoo-sounds.com. There it is.
0: Welcome
2: to Jurassic Park.
0: We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. The most phenomenal discovery of our time How'd you do this? becomes the greatest adventure of all time. Can
3: I touch
0: it? Sure. Universal Pictures presents You
3: feel that?
0: Hold on to your butts. A Steven Spielberg film. Senses are failing all over the park.
2: Yeah, that's nice. Gotta go. An adventure. Look out! No!
0: I can't get Jurassic Park back online. 65 million years in the making.
2: Jurassic Park. On the line from Los Angeles, under the stairs. Don't tell anyone, he's hiding. Nick Tate. Welcome, Nick. Is it
0: safe to come out from under the stairs? No. Why is he under the stairs? Well, when you make your booth, and most of us voiceover guys have booths, um, they try to make the walls dissimilar so that there's nothing just like a box, because it echoes too much and it bounces too much. So uh, they put in kind of 45-degree angles in certain places, typically. It helps a great deal. And, of course, therefore, the cupboard under the stairs has already got that built in for you. The problem is my wife walks up and down the stairs all the time when I'm recording, uh, or my dog with his toenails, (laughs) And I have to stop and say, uh, sorry, guys. Uh, that's a <laughs> no. I can't even tell them what it is because I'm supposed to be a professional. <laughs> it, uh,
2: if people only knew the areas that uh, us people worked in.
0: Yeah, um, and I'm sitting here in my underpants, you know, of course, because nobody can see me. I, I mean, figured- that's.
2: I was going to say, except me, because you forgot to turn the camera off. But that's another story.
0: (laughs) Sorry about that. I often tell people I'm in my underpants because they can't see. You know, I could be in a tuxedo. It doesn't matter what. I could be stark naked. And that's the beauty of voiceovers.
2: Your career is actually quite amazing, I have to say, because um, as an on-camera actor, most recently I saw you in East of Everything with Richard Roxburgh.
0: Yeah, wonderful.
2: But you I managed think. to jump across and get behind a microphone and do voiceovers. How do you do that? How do you switch between being an actor and then being someone doing a promo, for instance?
0: Um, I started out life as an actor. When I was a child actor. My parents were actors. My mother was a woman called Neva Carr-Glynn, and she was a very famous Australian radio actress and theatre actress. My dad was John Tate, and he was a, an actor too. And pretty famous as well. He won the Comedy Academy Award in the uh, Australian equivalent, which was the Macquarie Award, in 1949. My, wa- my mother won it in 1950 for being the best dramatic actress on radio, and then she won it again in 1951, so two years in a row. They did lots of radio in those days before television came in, and I spent a lot of time in studios with actors who were doing radio, uh, fully acting, and in fact, funnily enough, a lot of them would stand in front of the microphones doing all the actions that they need not necessarily do, with the exception of Ray Barrett, who's another wonderful Australian actor, who at one particular point in time in radio was playing Tarzan. Now, Ray used to be really, really painfully skinny, and so he was Physically, totally the wrong guy to be playing Tarzan. In fact, the guy that was playing Tarzan was an Australian actor called Rod Taylor. And he got some award from the Lux company and was taken off to America and never came back. He might've come back a couple of times, but he ostensibly went to the States and that was that. And so the radio series suddenly didn't have a, a Tarzan and Ray Barrett sounded a bit like Rod. And so they asked him to try out for Tarzan and he got the role. Because vocally, they sounded like this big tough guy. But Rod took it quite seriously and played the role the way it should be played. And stood in front of the microphone looking very handsome and debonair and all the ladies that played Jane and the other characters that came on as guests were equally impressed working with Rod Taylor. But when Ray Barrett got the part, all he wanted to do was send it up and he would be saying, Jane. Me touch and me come out swinging tree with you. All the while, while he's doing this big, tough voice, he was writhing pathetically like a licorice man in front of the microphone, pulling the most ridiculous faces. And even when he was saying that he loved Jane, he looked like a raging idiot. And the other actors were falling on the floor, stuffing handkerchiefs into their mouths, trying not to make any noise, because in those days they recorded everything on acetate. And if you made a mistake, they would have to break the disc and start again. I lived in London, and my dad went there in the early 60s, and he and Ray Barrett were best mates. And Ray did a, te- a television series in England called The Troubleshooters.
2: Yes, I remember it well.
0: And Dad appeared in The Troubleshooters with him in various character roles. Ray also had a boat, and so did Leo McCann, another wonderful Australian actor over there. And so my dad had always had boats here in Australia, but he didn't ever get one anything apart from a dinghy, because he lived on the Isle of Wight. Yeah. And uh, they would go out sailing and fishing together often and, and then come to the BBC and, and work. And in those days, back in the 60s, all the actors drank like fish. Mm-hmm. And they would become legless. It was extraordinary the the amount of alcohol they could take and still sound as if they were sober while they were acting.
2: One other person we have in common is Sylvia Anderson, who is the voice of Lady Penelope and also one of the um, producers and ex-wife of Gerry Anderson, who made The Thunderbirds.
0: And, you know, my father, God bless his socks, because he had uh, not appeared, but his voice was in a lot of The Thunderbirds. Uh, He still gets residual checks today, And and I I get one of those checks from my dad from his estate about every four months. I say, thanks, Dad. <laughs> what am I going to do with this? Can I have a, have a cup of coffee with it?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I was a show-off at school and was in all the school plays, and I played Coco and the Mikado and, and Mark Antony and Julius Caesar. And, and I had a real bent for it. I, I loved it. It's what I wanted to do. In fact, I did not want to remain at school. And my mother was in a radio serial back in those days in the late 1950s called Life with Dexter. And I came in occasionally as a character called Snails Gallagher, who was... At Ashley's next-door neighbor and very annoying friend. And it was great fun. I would come from Manly Boys High School at the age of about 14 to 2GB Macquarie where they recorded Life with Dexter in front of a live audience. They would rehearse throughout most of the day and I had to get from, I think, about 1 o'clock in the afternoon at school the rest of the day off and uh, I could attend the last rehearsal and and then do the show that night. So I wet my feet at the age of 14 as a radio actor and uh, didn't really go back to too much radio after that because I uh, had a bit of a boy soprano singing voice and I was in Minotti and the Night Visitors, a play that we, we did at our high school. And the Sydney Opera Company loved it so much they decided to take it over. And they put on professional singers, but of course they had to have a Amal, who was a 15-year-old boy, to sing the role. So I worked with the Sydney Opera Company. It was a wonderful experience for me to do that. Sadly, my voice broke after that, and I didn't continue to have the the quality of voice that I had then. However, I do sing, but most people ask me to stop. got into television in, in 1958. I left high school at the age of 15. I didn't like being there. I didn't complete school. My parents had divorced. Life was very odd, and I did not want to be at school anymore. I wanted to get out and earn a dollar and help my mum. Because television, when it came to Australia, completely killed the fabulous radio industry that we had. And, of course, the first television that was shown in Australia was in 1956 when Melbourne had the Olympic Games. But only the very rich had television sets. We didn't get a television set until about 1960, and I think that was the same for lots of people. They just couldn't afford it. But it, it totally killed the Australian radio industry. Uh, and sadly, those actors that were stars in radio could have transferred to television because most of them had come from theatrical and even a little bit of film background, like my mum. But Australia wasn't making any local content, but almost exclusively in those days played nothing but American repeats. Yeah. And that, that killed the Australian actors because even when we made a television show, it wasn't of the quality of the American shows. I think Channel 7 and Channel 9 in those days made them down sure that it wasn't going to be as good as an American show because they didn't want to have to spend the money. They could buy 77 Sunset Strip or Peter Diamond, these big, exciting American television series which cost in those days upwards of a quarter of a million each to make but would probably cost five million each to make today. And they could sell them to the entire Australian market for $5,000. We tried to fight them as Australian actors later on, but not until 1969, 1970, when we started the TV Make It Australian campaign, and we got Gough Whitlam and his political party on side, who weren't in power, and we helped put them in power by picketing and walking the streets and saying vote for Whitlam because he was going to give us guarantees that Australian drama would be elevated to at least two hours a week on television. obviously you're an
2: Australian, but you work in America with an American accent. There's a great video that's floating around on YouTube called Five Men in a Limo, uh, one of which is you. How did you as an Australian break into American movie promos?
0: Well, I think I've kind of set the background for my radio and voiceover potential from my youth in the industry and then getting into television and working my way up. Some actors rely on the fact that they have good looks, and some actors rely on the fact that they've got great acting chops, and others rely on the fact that they've got a good sound. Um, but, you know, uh, to to watch an actor who's listening to himself on camera, uh, I, I've known several actors who were devastatingly good-looking guys and also had very good voices. And so you'd think they'd become superstars, but they didn't because they were very aware of their own beauty and the sound of the beauty of their voice and so forth, and they almost listen to themselves when they're working, and that is the fatal mistake. You must never do that, certainly not when you're on camera. And so um, I was lucky that I was starting to build a voiceover career in Australia back in the the mid-60s. I went to England for a long while from 1965 to 1969, but before I went, I'd started to do a little bit of voiceover work. And I got work in England doing voiceovers uh, for Capital Radio. And I used to ride my bike into London to go to Capital Radio and, and just kind of hang around there and see if there was anything that they wanted voiced. And in those days, they would pay me seven pounds a voice. And it was all ad hoc. You know, I, I wasn't booked. I didn't have an agent to do those voiceovers and so on. But I wanted to do them. And I realized that it was a great deal of money to be earned doing voiceovers. And so I went out and got myself a tape recorder and I listened to voices on the radio and on television. And the ones that I thought that sounded a little like the area that I could work in, I copied. And I just kept on working at that at home, in my kitchen in fact, with this tape recorder and and headphones on, trying to sound like these people that were working. You know, that was the success formula. Why not try and do that? But don't try and do it if it's not in your range. Seek the sounds that suit your voice. One of the things that became apparent to myself and to producers that started hiring me, that I had a storytelling kind of quality about my voice. Uh, Even in America, they won't give me the sort of commercial work where I'm Joe next door because I just don't sound like Joe next door. But I don't talk like like this as an Australian. I, I use the appropriate American dialect or accent that might be required of me for what I'm doing. Therefore, you don't stand out. Uh, I came to America in 1989 for a television series that I was shooting in Australia called Dolphin Cove for CBS Paramount up in Queensland. So they put together an episode, I mean, an idea. They shot some footage of dolphins and showed the great beauty of the barrier reef and put in some action sequences and stuff. And Paramount commissioned it to go ahead. Anyway, we only were commissioned to do eight, and that's what we did. And then they go into a thing called hiatus here in America, which happens after April. And then on June the 22nd, all the television channels are voted on by the networks for whether they will continue with that particular series or not. More often than not, shows are dropped on June 22nd for new ones. And that's why it's very important for actors to come here in January, February, March, April to be here for pilot season. I knew this was going to go on and I flew over here to America to talk with the producers about Dolphin Cove because we didn't know it was going to get axed. We were hoping it would be picked up. Uh, Paramount wanted to go ahead with it. They gave it the green light, but CBS, who were the partners to that, said no, they didn't want to go on with it. So we didn't go on. And here I was, I brought myself over to the States to be with them. And probably a good idea because the casting director and Producers of that show liked what I was doing in Dolphin Cove, and they said, "Stick around, Nick. You know, we can um, we can use you." And I, and I said, "But I don't have the right to be in America. I don't have a green card, and I you know I can't work." And they said, "Nick, we're Paramount. If we want you to stay, you can stay." And uh, they did. I mean, I had to stand like all the Americans did to an audition for various new shows that were coming up, and one of them happened to be a show called Open House, it was on Fox. It ran for two seasons, and I was luckily chosen to play one of the leading roles in that series, this comedy series, and I loved doing it. But I had left Australia to do it, and uh, here I was in this country with my wife and kids in Australia, and in the first instance, it was fairly easy because they wanted to, to use me and they were paying a lot of money, as American television series do. And so that wasn't a hard decision, but it also folded. So uh, I decided that I should remain, but I wanted to extend my abilities to do other things here, not just work on television. I knew that I could earn at least a 25% of my living doing voiceovers if I could be accepted as an American. So I put my tape out uh, to various voiceover agencies here. They have specific voiceover agencies in America. And um, I got rejected by all of them. I was lucky because now nearly two years had passed and I was beginning to learn the American accent. Everybody can hear the little slips that you make continuously, no matter how good you are. But if you live here for two or three years and only mix with Americans and only work with American material, then you have a far greater chance of getting it right. And I was very lucky that I was working with Americans. And it became very easy for me to swap to everyday languages an American. So it was important to lose my Australian accent if I was to get any work here for voiceovers. Yeah. And I still wasn't getting any voiceover work. My television work was getting sporadic after the series finished. I was doing guest shots in things like Star Trek and um, Murder, She Wrote and Jag and um, oh, Dear John and Cheers and a whole bunch of stuff that I was doing kind of like one-off little guest shots in or even sometimes big guest shots. So during that time, I went to a party and uh, there was a guy there called Vince Sklanner, who was a producer of what we call Boutique movie promos. He ran a company called Stella Productions, and he was doing a lot of work, but small-time work. And he had used people like Don LaFontaine, who was the great god of voice and is indeed one of the five men in the limo. It's his limo, and he was a wonderful man. He just was a workaholic. Don LaFontaine, anybody can look him up and see who he is and what he'd done, and you know that, yes, you'd heard that voice always. And it was pretty intimidating to be around a man like Don because he sounded in reality exactly like he sounded on screen. He had this big, booming voice and he could make the windows rattle and it was very impressive. But he was a hell of a nice guy. And if you watch Five Minute Limo, you'll see his comedy. He's very funny. He was lovely to me. Anyway, Vince Glennon met me at a party and he said, you should be doing voiceovers. And I said, why don't you tell my agent? So he said, uh, I'll get you voiceover work. I said, you really? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I didn't think he was speaking the truth, you know, so I, I got his car to put it in my pocket. I didn't think about it again. Vince was from New York, and Vince would say to me, like, hey, what do you think of the blonde? Um, He'd said, oh, but you I saw you. You were talking to her. I mean, what do you think? I said, she's very nice, and I wondered where he was going with this. Turns out that she was his wife, and I had been chatting to her uh, yeah, innocently. Huh. But anyway, he said to me, it's okay, I'm putting you on. He said, I know who you are. He said, you Nick Tate, you do voiceovers in Australia for Channel 9. And I went, um, yeah, <laughs> well, I, I did. How do you know that? And he said, because I used to work for Channel 9. I came out there. I know who you are. You worked for me, you schmuck. Don't you remember me? I don't know why he thought that I should know him, but he saw me a lot on television. He knew who I was, and he certainly had worked with my voice. But anyway, Vince convinced me that he could get me work. He kept ringing me, and eventually I went around to his house, and he started putting my voice on some of those early promotions for those films and schooling me in the way he thought that I should be doing movie trailers. And he said, you can earn a million dollars with your voice. I just know you can. I work with people here who make a million dollars every year. They don't have the quality that you have. I thought he was pissing in my pocket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I I started doing some work for him, and he actually got booked with me as the voice. Then I got 1492, Conquest of Paradise. That made a big impact on the industry. The film was a beautiful film. It was a spectacular look at, visually sumptuous. And the music was a Vangelis music, and it was just, everything about it was wonderful. And the, the funny story here is you say, how did I get into the big American movie break? Well, I think that film was the one that did it for me because they actually wanted Christopher Plummer, who's in the film, to be the voiceover guy to do it. But Christopher Plummer wanted $100,000. to do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, So the producers asked me to come in and see if I could do it because they had a guy on it, but he didn't sound anything like Christopher Plummer. He was pretty damn good. And my agent rang me and said, Nick, I've got you in on this film, 1492. Uh, he said, this could be huge for you. I've been telling you, and as Vince told you, because my agent knew Vince, and Vince introduced me to my agent, whose name was Steve Tischerman. Tisherman was the biggest voiceover agent in America, particularly where movie trailers were concerned, because he had Don LaFontaine, he had Peter Cullen, he had Al Chalk, he had John Leader, he had all the top voiceover guys. And I didn't understand at that point in time how important that was. If you wanted to be in voiceovers, this was the guy to be with. So anyway, he said to me, I've got you an interview with the producers of this and they want to hear your voice doing it for them. So I went down to a place called Kaleidoscope and Kaleidoscope at that point in time was the voiceover studio to be working for in Hollywood. It was the most successful. They did all the biggest films and Don LaFontaine was there constantly, but they didn't want Don for this film because they wanted it to sound more English, not exactly English. They wanted that mid-Atlantic flavor which Christopher Plummer would have given them. And so I arrive, and a man called Steve Panama, who, was, who owned the company at the time, was a very intimidating kind of guy, stood there with a cigar hanging out of his mouth. He says, so Tishman tells me you're, you're going to be the next Dalla Fontaine. And I said, um, <laughs> oh, don't, God, I don't believe that to be true, but... And he said, well, look, have a look at this film. So they put the promo up for me and I sat there. And it wasn't just done on a tiny little screen. At Kaleidoscope, they had their own cinema. And you sit there and they put this film on, on Cinemascope in front of you. And you're literally... 20 feet from the screen, and the sound was incredible. And if anybody ever saw 1492, and it was just stunningly beautiful. And this wonderful, rich English voice coming over the top. And I thought, wow, this is breathtaking. And the guy's great. And when it finished, Panama took his cigar out of his mouth. He turned to me he said, you see the problem? And I went, oh, yeah. <laughs> I was lying. He said, can you fix it? I said, sure. He said, okay, go in the booth, fix it. So I woke up the corridor and I'm, I'm clutching the walls and saying, God, what have I done? <laughs> this is going to crucify me. I pretended that I knew what the problem was. I could see the problem was that he didn't sound like Christopher Plummer. He sounded beautiful. He sounded very English. And I must confess that I don't sound like Christopher Plummer either. But I just had more of a kind of a dramatic theatricality about what it should be and have that mid-Atlantic quality of discovering America. And I was very emotional having watched this. I felt it was brilliant. And so they played it for me again when I got into the booth with the headphones on. And I said, please take his voice away now. I just want to watch the film again. And so the promo is about 60 seconds long. They played it again. And I said the words to myself very quietly. He said, we can't hear you. I said, no, no, I'm not quite ready. And then I said, okay, let's do it. And I did it to the picture with the sound and everything. And I just got thrills inside my body while I was doing it because it was magical. It's like being joined by a choral choir, you know, to be supported by that kind of quality of of sound of music and the pictures that I was speaking to on screen. It was just breathtaking. And I finished and Panama turned and looked at me through the glass and he said, start putting a new wing on your house. And he walked out of the room. I got the job. And the technician said, when I walked in, he said, Jesus, he said, you did that in one take. And I said, uh, yeah, is that good? He said, you kidding me? Yeah, man, that's why Panama said, start putting a new wing on your house, Nick. He said, I've never heard him say that to anybody. Well, you know, I, but not only did I put a new wing on what it was I was about to buy, I bought the whole house and, yeah, and I tore it down as, as Americans do. Yeah. And I rebuilt it because... The money for voiceovers is very nice too, trust me. It's, uh, it's been a very, very nice run for me for about eight or nine years here in, uh, in the voiceover world through the mid-90s right through to 2001 when I came back to Australia. At the peak of my voiceover career, I walked away from it. After I did 1492, I then got Free Willy, and then I got Searching for Bobby Fischer, which was a small film, but nonetheless, I did 70 sessions for it. Uh, And that's always the nice pickup for the voiceover actors here. They pay for each session. They don't pay residuals. You know, everybody wants to do voiceovers, in particular do movie trailers, because they pay for each session. And every time they get a new idea, they ask you to come back and do it again, and you have to be paid all over again.
2: Because you were doing a lot of those from where you are now, in your home studio.
0: Um, Well, no, not initially. I mean, Jurassic Park... Free Willy, 1492, all those kind of things, Apollo 13, and then later on I did the, the next, The Lost World, and on it goes, all the James Bond movies. I've done hundreds of movie trailers. Yeah, yeah. But it started with 1492, and then of course, within three months, I got Jurassic Park, and, and that just totally sealed it. Because yeah. although the audience didn't know that I wasn't an American... The producers that make movie trailers—they wanted that new sound because Don LaFontaine had dominated the industry for so long with his magnificent, rich, full-bodied voice. I was this kind of gentler, more storytelling quality, and um, that's exactly what they wanted for something like um, Jurassic Park, for example. You know, that starts. This is a story that started 65 million years ago. A movie by Steven Spielberg. Jurassic Park. My agent got very annoyed about it. He said, you're whispering. I said, yeah, well, I don't know about whispering, but that's the quality. I want to tell a story to my kids sitting at the foot of the bed, and I'm telling them a story. This is a story something that happened 65 million years ago. So you tell my boy at that stage was about 10, and my daughter was uh, about four so you know gog-eyed, these kids are sitting at the foot of the bed and i'm telling them stories and i translated that to some of the the films that i did that needed the promos to attract the kids and the parents that wanted the kids to be attracted next week the nick tate story continues i mean i was here for nearly three years and although i'd had a fairly good voice of a career in australia i could not get arrested here yeah. nobody listened to my voice and then I meet a guy at a party who recognizes that he thinks I can do it. And he gives me the break. He introduces me to Tishman, one of the top voice agents in the world, who would never have touched me with a barge pole had Vince not said to him, you've got to listen to this guy.
3: The Voice for the Voices. This is the VO Radio Show.
2: So there you go. That's Nick Tate. That is part one of the interview. Now you know where Nick Tate came from, like his background in uh, the performing arts as an actor and his parents, of course, being actors. But how did he get into being one of the top five voiceover guys doing movie trailers in the US? Hmm. Mm. Fascinating. And can Absolutely I do it? Absolutely fascinating.
3: <laughs> can but I do it It's one of those things you go, oh,
2: man, why didn't that ever happen to me? Yes, me, please. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Anyway, it's got to happen to someone, and I'm glad that happened to Nick. He's a lovely guy. Well, I reckon that's about a show. Yep, we'll, we'll get back to a part two of that interview in a couple of weeks, but... Next week, we'll be talking to someone who's not in the voiceover industry, but he's certainly recorded plenty of voices. It's a man called Richard Lush, and he was one of the seven people at Abbey Road who made all those wonderful Beatles records. Oh, looking forward to this one. Yeah. Well, have yourself a fine week. I will. And uh, we'll chat then, eh? We will. In the meantime, keep on talking. (laughs) What the hell was that about?
3: The VO Radio Show is produced in the studios of Voodoo Sound. To polish your next audio production, check us out at voodoo-sound.com. Find professional voices simply all in one place. Realtimecasting.com. Including me.
1: And don't forget to catch next week's show because we've got this.
3: The Beatles Engineer, Richard Lush.